You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Welcome to U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, My name is Rick Olson. I'm a senior advisor here at USIP. Also a retired U.S. diplomat, former U.S. ambassador to Pakistan, and former U.S. ambassador to the United Arab Emirates. Uh, So I have, uh, in my career, had a foot in both of the areas we're talking about today. Uh, The U.S. Institutes of Peace was founded in 1984 by Congress as an independent national institute dedicated to the proposition that peace is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. We pursue this vision uh, of a world without violent conflict by working on the ground with local partners. We have a particularly active program in Pakistan where we have supported programs in 35 cities and villages across the country focusing on tolerance and diversity using the arts, media, and culture to foster dialogue and peace education. We're meeting today uh, to discuss the current state of relations between Pakistan, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the other Gulf states. When I served in the Gulf, I always had the impression that Pakistan loomed very large because of its military power, its nuclear weapons, and because it supplies a huge quantity of labor uh, to the Gulf states. And historically, the Gulf has loomed large in Pakistan as a source of financing and I think you might say Islamic credentialing as well. These trends seem to be accelerating as Pakistan is once again facing a potential fiscal crisis and has sought financial assistance from Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Qatar. At the same time, Pakistan has traditionally had good relations with its neighbor, Iran, uh, although recent border clashes have heightened tensions. In the past, Pakistan has been very successful at managing to have good relations with all of these countries. The overarching question for our panel today is, will Pakistan continue to navigate the split between Iran and the Gulf countries, and indeed, the split within the Gulf countries, between Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Qatar, um, as regional tensions increase. So we're delighted to be joined today uh, by three experts on this topic. Uh, Ankit Panda, uh, Senior Editor at The Diplomat, Karen Young, Resident Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and Alex Vatanka, Senior Fellow at the Middle East Institute. I'll ask uh, each of the panelists to uh, begin, beginning with uh, Ankit to uh, lay out um, their arguments in a few minutes, and then uh, we will uh, break for Q&As after presentations. So, Ankit? Great. Well, uh, thank you so much. Um, and uh, thank you to USIP for not only bringing me here today, but um, commissioning the special report that forms the basis of this discussion today. Um, I began writing that report in 2017, and of course we've seen a lot happen uh, in the region. Certainly we've seen a change of government in Pakistan. 
Um, I also really want to express my gratitude to uh, USIP's editorial staff. Uh, you know, as you heard, my title is senior editors. I'm always sympathetic to editors that help uh, writers look good at the end of the day. So really couldn't have done this without the uh, editorial support here at uh, USIP. Um, so let me talk a bit at, at kind of the highest level about why the relationship between these three countries is something that we should even be interested in or pay attention to. Uh, and I think the place to begin there is to really uh, understand what brings Pakistan um, into such an interesting position between Riyadh and Tehran. Um, as most people in this room are likely aware, Saudi Arabia and Iran um, are geostrategic competitors, uh, not only in the Middle East, but increasingly um, in the peripheries of that region. Uh, South Asia is certainly uh, in that area. Uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, of course, sitting right on Iran's eastern frontier. Um, and as we just heard from the ambassador, border tensions there have grown uh, recently. Um, now, Pakistan uh, is a, uh, obviously a hugely significant actor uh, in the broader realm of the Islamic world. It's the world's second largest Muslim-majority country, second most populous member of the OIC. It's a country of nearly 200 million people with nuclear weapons, um, and it has a long and difficult history uh, with the United States, especially as a partner, an ally, and at times, unfortunately, an adversary. Um, and Pakistan is a Muslim country, as I said, with a Sunni majority population, but a very significant Shia minority. Um, about 95% uh, plus of Pakistan's population are Muslims, and of that population, uh, give or take around 20% are, are Shia. So the growing sectarian nature um, of the geostrategic contest between Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, well, I shouldn't say growing, it's, it's had that color for a while, and that's been long a concern for, for Pakistan. Um, and uh, I'm not going to go too much into the history, uh, but I do hope we'll hear from uh, Alex a little bit about that. And he's done some great work that I actually relied on for, uh, for this report, especially uh, one of the periods that we, we look at as one of the origin points of much of what we observe today is the late 1970s, when not only do you have the Islamic Revolution in Iran, but you also have um, the broader campaign of Islamization that begins under General Zia-ul-Haq. Uh, who uh, installs a military coup in uh, 1977, uh, and that's really a, an epical moment in, uh, in the nature of political Islam's development in Pakistan uh, today. Um, meanwhile, I haven't said a lot about Saudi Arabia yet, but uh, Saudi Arabia obviously is a major uh, regional power in the Middle East, an exporter of hydrocarbons the world over. Uh, it has a special relationship with Pakistan dating back decades, and that relationship really takes on all sorts of dimensions, uh, including a military dimension that uh, I'll discuss a bit in the context of the two case studies that I chose to focus on uh, for this uh, USIP special report. Um, so relations between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran um, have been difficult for a variety of reasons since the 1979 revolution uh, in, in Iran, uh, for a variety of structural reasons. And of course, uh, the United States had played an important role in the region prior to the revolution with its uh, twin pillars policy that sort of recognized the geopolitical reality uh, at the time in the Middle East that, uh, that Iran and Saudi Arabia were two natural poles that needed to be balanced. Um, and after 1979, that equilibrium was sort of thrown off kilter. And for um, we have decades of history that kind of attest to that. Uh, and, and today, we see Iran and Saudi Arabia competing in the Middle East uh, through a variety of um, means and proxies uh, in, in Syria, in Yemen, and what have you. Um, so bringing us to Pakistan now, um, I want to talk a bit about why Pakistan has chosen to balance between Iran and Saudi Arabia instead of bandwagoning. And the most obvious hypothesis when I started looking at this would be that 
you know, Pakistan naturally has a special relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, it makes sense. There are sort of apocryphal, apocryphal but fairly well-supported reports that even Saudi Arabia might have provided financial assistance to Pakistan in the 1980s uh, in the development of its nuclear program. And when we, when we look at those aspects of cooperation, um, even with Iran right there on Pakistan's um, western border, it should, it should be the case that Pakistan should unequivocally side with Saudi Arabia. And I think at the end of the day, uh, one, of the, one of the conclusions that I present is that you know, if, if push were to come to shove, that would happen, that, uh, that, Pakistan, and, um, that Pakistan and Saudi Arabia are, are natural partners in that way. But Pakistan's chosen to play, play things in a much more nuanced manner, particularly in recent years. And here I want to bring your attention to the two case studies that I chose to look into as, an, as examples of how Pakistan today has chosen to navigate these, um, th the difficult relationship between these two regional powers in the Middle East. Uh, so the first uh, incident that I thought was um, quite striking, and uh, I was actually writing about this at the time as it happened, trying to understand why Pakistan was making certain decisions, uh, why the Pakistani legislator behaved in the way that it did. Uh, but the first incident was when, um, in March 2015, Saudi Arabia uh, initiated um, Operation Decisive Storm, which was the initial uh, set of um, um, operations into Yemen um, to, uh, to support uh, the government there and uh, push back against the Houthis. That campaign is still going as of 2019. And Pakistan at the time had been uh, partly assumed in Riyadh to uh, effectively be willing to lend military support uh, to that coalition. And uh, of course, that didn't happen. We had a neutrality resolution at the time in April 2015 when the Pakistani legislature um, overwhelmingly decided that it would remain as neutral of a party as was possible at the time. And for the Saudis, this was a little bit of a, um, of a setback because of uh, the recent financial support at the time that they had provided to the Pakistanis. It was sort of an understanding that in exchange for Saudi beneficents um, in the financial realm, that Pakistan would make its substantial military capabilities available to the kingdom in circumstances like this. Um, and this isn't where the story ends. Um, the, the case does change over time. In 2016, after a change in Pakistan's uh, military leadership, after the retirement of Chief of Army Staff Raheel Sharif uh, to uh, Kamar Javed Bajwa, who's the incumbent Chief of Army Staff, Pakistan did decide to eventually send 5,000 troops to the kingdom uh, strictly for border defense. So these Pakistani troops were not de deployed in an expeditionary capability uh, to support coalition operations inside Yemen. Uh, and that was a significant uh, moment in particular. Um, and after that, we've also seen Pakistan ramp up uh, some of its support. Um, and this, of course, brings us to the current geopolitical context where Pakistan is in the middle of a balance of payments crisis and Saudi Arabia, again, finds itself playing that role of the important benefactor for Islamabad. So we see sort of how um, this is both a special relationship with, with sort of decades of, of strategic convergence, uh, but it does take on a, a transactional give and take nature. Um, the second case that I focused on was in January 2016. Um, and this was a watershed moment in uh, relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. This was when the Saudis chose to execute uh, a Shia Sheikh, uh, Nimr al-Nimr, in the eastern province. He was, a, he was a prominent Shia leader, and that's the part of Saudi Arabia that's, that's uh, overwhelmingly um, Shia. And uh, that effectively set off a firestorm in Tehran where um, a massive mob sort of swarmed the Saudi embassy. Uh, there was, you know, Molotov cocktails thrown. The, the building caught fire. Uh, and that led eventually to the collapse of diplomatic relations between the two sides. And that's really where we see the, the modern, quote unquote, Cold War, if we can call it that, between the two sides really, really take off. Um, and this is also coinciding with 
uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's uh, sort of meteoric rise within the Saudi political system and his own apprehensions about the challenge that Iran presents to Saudi Arabia and the region. Um, and how does Pakistan react to this? Um, again, what it does is it, it, it strives to push for the appearance of neutrality. Um, so in Pakistan, of course, uh, civil military relations, uh, we don't have the best history of civil military relations in Pakistan. Um, and in a unique show of unity at the time, uh, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif of the Pakistan Muslim League government, who obviously has a long history uh, with the Pakistani military, he was deposed in a military coup in 1999 and was sort of inherently um, skeptical of the uh, Pakistani military's designs in both foreign and security policy and domestic policy. Nawaz Sharif gets on an airplane with Chief of Army Staff Rahil Sharif, and the two of them actually engage in a bit of shuttle diplomacy. But they first go to Riyadh, and they meet with um, senior leaders there, uh, including King Salman. And then they head to Tehran, where they meet with uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and, uh, and Foreign Minister Javad Zarif at the time. And they explicitly uh, take the position that Pakistan is willing to mediate. They wanted both sides to identify focal persons. And this process didn't go anywhere, um, but I think it was really a unique show of Pakistani initiative. Um, so I've described now Pakistan's willingness to put on this air of neutrality and in the relations between these two countries, but why does it do that? Um, and I think the answer uh, lies within what I described at the beginning of these remarks, which is the uh, domestic circumstances of the sectarian buildup within Pakistan. Um, and this has particularly been important since 2014 uh, when Pakistan uh, decided to implement its national action plan against um, terrorist groups within the country uh, that were stoking up sectarian violence, primarily against the Shia um, minority. We have groups like Lashkar-e-Jhangvi who kicked up their activity uh, after that time. And th there has been a long history, of course, of, of Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, and perhaps we'll hear about this from some of the other speakers, um, financing and uh, encouraging sort of, um, I don't want to call them proxies, but effectively groups within Pakistan that do end up supporting their ends. So by maintaining this air of neutrality, Pakistan perhaps calculates that it can disincentivize both uh, Tehran and Saudi Arabia from turning Pakistani territory into a battlefield for the broader Cold War that's now playing out between them. And, and to an extent, I think um, that approach has been successful. But I think we're having this conversation at a really interesting inflection point. Because uh, earlier in February, on February 13th, we had a major terror attack uh, in Balochistan, uh, which is um, Obviously, there's the Pakistani province of Balochistan that borders Iran's poorest uh, southeastern province of Sistan, Balochistan. Um, and that's a very difficult border relationship for the two countries. Pakistan's military has previously even accused the Iranian government, directly accused President Rouhani, actually, on a visit to Pakistan of actually assisting India's research and analysis wing of uh, conducting sort of espionage operations out of Iranian territory. And that, uh, again, puts this all in a, in a complicated, complicated dimension. And uh, on top of that, I think what we are seeing now is Pakistan perhaps more than it would like drift towards Saudi Arabia, primarily due to the unfortunate fiscal realities today in the country. Um, so I'll stop there and I'm happy to elaborate on any of that in the Q&A. Okay. Thanks, Sanke. Go ahead. I think I'm going to stand. Please. <coughs> so I can read my notes a little bit better. Well, thank you. Thanks for including me on this panel and thank you to USIP for the invitation. Um, I was asked to speak about the kind of the Gulf view, the Saudi perspective on the relationship with Pakistan. And I have to say, with full disclosure, I don't work on Pakistan. I work uh, as a political economist mostly on the GCC. Um, but I think we have to frame this relationship in the context of the broader expansionist fiscal and foreign policy 
of Saudi Arabia under King Salman since 2015, and of course, under the direction of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's also Minister of Defense and the leader of the uh, Vision 2030 um, economic uh, restructuring program and really social liberalization agenda, if you want to call it that. So I, I see Pakistan excuse me, as just one part of a much broader opening um, and what I would call an eastward orientation um, in economic outlook towards new political alliances. This is a restructuring of the Saudi economy that's still very much centered on energy, if not explicitly the export of oil. Um, it's in the expansion of transport, of logistic links through ports development, the acceleration of the national oil company Aramco into a full-scale energy firm with stakes in both oil and gas production, refineries, um, as well as petrochemical products. So the eastward focus is towards an export market, um, an emerging middle class consumer market in Asia. So I mean, the framing of this event, to my mind, is more important looking at Saudi Arabia, China, India, Pakistan, than Iran. Iran is less relevant to me the way that I see um, the, the kind of um, orientation of the region. Um, Saudi Arabia, I think, has tied its cart to the horse of Asia um, in this middle-class consumer growth expectation, particularly in China, but also importantly in India. And if that strategy fails, it's not just Saudi Arabia that suffers. It's really the, the global economy. So the main targets of Saudi economic ties are not Pakistan, but really India and China. Um, and um, so I would see Saudi-Pakistan ties as part of that broader geoeconomic shift uh, through the Middle East and Asia, which is about the future of energy, about the future of productivity in the region, and who controls access to trade, refining, and the transport of energy products. It's about ports, pipelines, and competition for different kinds of electricity generation and delivery. So Pakistan has a role to play in this eastward expansion, and we certainly saw that in uh, Mohammed bin Salman's recent visit to the region where he went to China, Pakistan, and India. Um, but there's also an important soft power connection, of course, long-standing ties between Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. Um, and these relationships, in fact, all of Saudi Arabia's foreign policy relationships right now can be quite fraught. Um, and 2015 was a particularly difficult year for Saudi-Pakistan relations. But I think we can see um, that these ties have been renewed, um, perhaps because of the change in domestic leadership, which is more uh, centralized or more cohesive between the prime minister and the military now in Pakistan. So let me make four brief points about the Saudi-Pakistani relationship, first on security ties, second on people ties, um, especially the role of foreign workers, third on direct aid and financial support, and last, and I think most importantly, a little bit more on this geoeconomics that are driving Saudi foreign and economic policy right now. So first, on, uh, on those longstanding security ties, um, as Ankit already mentioned, uh, there is this well-established military-to-military relationship between Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. Um, I think the recent political shifts have made this easier. Um, this is in uh, a couple of appointments, very high-level appointments in the Pakistani military. Um, 
It's also worth noting that the personal ties between Prime Minister Khan and Mohammed bin Salman, there clearly is an affinity. It was very uh, photogenic. Their rides each gave each other a ride in his personal car uh, when Imran Khan was in Riyadh and when Mohammed bin Salman um, was in Pakistan, the same thing. So they are, um, they're able to relate to each other on a one-to-one on -one level, which I think is uh, been beneficial to both in kind of image production for their domestic audiences. Um, but I think that the general-to-general -general relationship as trusted intermediaries, particularly on behalf of the Pakistani government, um, is an improvement in, in those ties. Um, one point also worth mentioning in terms of um, the domestic constituency's perception of these two leaders. For Imran Khan, my understanding is that it's very important for him to be able to present this image that's very much about anti-corruption, that's about gaining financial aid and support for the people that will be delivered directly to the people. Um, Saudi Arabia obviously has quite a different system. There is also an anti-corruption campaign under Mohammed bin Salman, um, but the kind of tradition of gifting or kind of back office deals um, that were common in the past in Pakistan, I think, are no longer politically acceptable. Um, so this, this presents kind of a new um, phase of that relationship. The longstanding um, military ties, most recently the, pr the promotion of General Raheel Sharif to head the Islamic Military Counterterrorism Coalition, the IMCTC, which is a, quite a long acronym for an organization which no one's quite sure what they're doing. Um, but this is, was meant to be sort of um, a band-aid over the, uh, the lack of Pakistani military support for the Saudi campaign in Yemen, um, but also part of a larger Saudi outreach to try to build coalitions and to build expeditionary military capacity across the region. So it's, it's anti-terror in name, but it's also meant to be a force potentially for domestic stability, um, which is quite different than the security guarantee for example, that the United States offers to the Gulf states. There's a long tradition of hosting Pakistani troops inside of the kingdom, um, as has been mentioned. So this is not something that's unfamiliar. And I would say just culturally, there's this you know, very broad familiarity with Pakistanis in uniform across the Gulf. You know, there's a large contingent of Pakistanis within the security sector in Bahrain. Um, and certainly, this is a long tr tradition back to the trucial states. We have to talk about the nuclear issue. Um, and there is this sort of concern and anxiety um, that Saudi Arabia seeks to broaden its relationship with Pakistan in order to um, gain access to nuclear uh, weapon technology. Um, other scholars more knowledgeable about this have argued that Saudi Arabia has had the missile technology to deliver warheads since the light, late 1980s. So it's, it's not necessarily the delivery system, but it's the uh, the packaging, um, which would need to be changed. There's also reports of a solid fuel rocket manufacturing site now under construction southwest of Riyadh. Um, but my colleague Mike Elman at the uh, IISS Institute seems to think that that's more of a Chinese design. So there's a great bit of speculation about who is involved and to what degree Saudi Arabia is serious about developing um, this capacity. Of course, there are also negotiations with the US government in the transfer of uh, nuclear technologies. Um, and there's kind of two paths towards this. There's the one, two, three agreement, which is um, you know, what the United States has, has with other allies, including South Korea and India. And then what they call the gold standard, which is a bit more restrictive, which is the recent agreement that the US signed in 2010 with the United Arab Emirates. 
What's interesting about the, um, the memorandum of understanding with the UAE and the United States is that the very last paragraph of that agreement gives the UAE the ability to renegotiate the terms um, should another country in the Middle East, defined broadly as the region, um, gain a, a more generous um, one, two, three agreement in such the way that South Korea or India has, which allows um, the uh, enrichment of uranium, uh, uranium and um, reprocessing. Um, so what we're seeing is potentially a, a you know, proliferation in the region for sure, but also in legalese, very different ways to structure these kinds of agreements. So that I think there still very much is open possibility between the US and Saudi Arabia um, to come to some sort of understanding. The other thing is that Saudi Arabia does have uranium deposits, and they would like to have the right, and they do have the right, um, to develop those. Um, all right, the second point on people to people to ties. Uh, there's a huge restructuring in Saudi Arabia. There have been 1.3 million workers who have left the kingdom, foreign workers, in the last year and a half. And a large many of those are, uh, are likely Pakistani. They're also from Egypt, from Bangladesh, from, um, from India, from, from all over the region. Um, and so this creates a, you know, a, a big vulnerability to communities inside of Pakistan who depend on um, that monthly income. Um, there is a, a shared interest in developing de the defense manufacturing uh, sector in Saudi Arabia with Pakistani assistance. Pakistan does export a great deal of uh, light uh, weapons and, and munitions to Saudi Arabia. It's an important market for Pakistan. Uh, a drop in the bucket to what Saudi Arabia uh, buys yearly in, in arms. Um, MBS also made a, a gesture to release about 2,000 Pakistanis in Saudi uh, jails while uh, he, when he went to visit Pakistan, and that, of course, was a boost to um, Imran Khan's kind of domestic popularity. Um, but I think in the short term, Pakistan is certainly a loser to the economic reforms going in Saudi Arabia right now. And, mm -hmm. Um, even, you know, we'll talk about the aid, but even the, you know, generous loans and uh, direct uh, cash transfers um, are probably not sufficient to displace that long-term labor market, um, which has been so useful to Pakistan. So the third point on direct aid and financial support, it has been a big year, but it's not just about Saudi-Pakistan. This is really Gulf-wide, and Ambassador Olson mentioned this. So there is a, a $6 billion package of Saudi assistance to Pakistan. Um, $3 billion in a central bank deposit, which of course Saudi Arabia can remove. It's, it's an interest-bearing uh, deposit. And a $3 billion loan to purchase Saudi oil, right? So this is not charity. Um, this, is, uh, this is support which is meant to also enhance uh, the balance sheet of Saudi Arabia. The UAE made the same commitment, a $6 billion commitment in the same structure, central bank deposit and a loan for oil and gas products. Um, but again, as I've argued elsewhere, I mean, when we see the economic statecraft of the GCC states to the wider region. It's not charity, right? This is for um, financial gain, often for state-related or state-owned firms, um, and it's done in a very technical and um, very careful way. Careful in that it's profit-motivated, not careful in that it is in the interest of the long-term <coughs> development of the recipient state. Um, so for example, ADNOC, the national oil company of uh, uh, Abu Dhabi, um, has a partnership with Parco, which is uh, an energy firm in Pakistan, which is 40% owned. It used to be owned um, uh, directly by ADNOC. Then it was transferred to IPIC, which was a, a fund in the UAE. It's had some recent controversy. And now part of Mubadala, which is one of the sovereign wealth funds of the UAE. 
Um, so when these energy partnerships are made, this is basically going to be electricity generation, um, the returns go back to the UAE, which is the point that I would like to make. Less discussed in the press have been negotiations with Qatar um, for a similar $3 billion loan in gas support. Pakistan has um, long-term gas contracts with Qatar. Um, Qatar supplies a, a pretty significant part, about a billion dollars a year in long 15-year contract to Pakistan for LNG. Um, and part of Pakistan's energy mix, um, about 26% of their uh, local electricity generation is by uh, natural gas, and they'd like to increase that away from the dirty coal and oil-fired plants. Um, so that's an important relationship as well. Um, <clears throat> back to the, the last point, which I think is uh, the most important, these kind of geoeconomic questions of energy, transport, and power delivery. There is certainly a scramble going on for influence, um, and we can see this from MENA, Horn of Africa, Indian Ocean, Red Sea Corridor. It's, it's wide in its reach. Um, and it's over the means of energy production, transport. Um, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Qatar as major energy producers are on one side of what's very much a symbiotic relationship with China. Um, so they are competitors in some fields, but they're also in a joint project, which is really this dynamism and the expectation that where global growth will happen will be in this region. And so you can be a part of it, and you can capture that market and create products for that market, or you can be left behind. Um, and that's, that's really where Iran is not part of the equation at all, um, given current sanctions and the, the withdrawal uh, from the US of the JCPOA. Um, so Pakistan is a part of this, uh, this port scramble, of course. Um, interesting that Gwadar port was until 1958 owned by Oman, right? So I mean, the history of port development and ownership in the region I mean, Aden in Yemen was the second busiest port in the world into the 1950s, only second to New York. So the recreation of transport logistic hubs across the region um, is a refocusing towards the east um, and a bit of a decoupling from where energy markets and growth markets are in North America and Western Europe and everything else um, to the east. And it's not just in the transport and what these ports will create in their refineries of, of energy products. It's also in the control of where fertilizers go, where wheat goes, and how it goes, who transports it. Um, so this is, uh, you know, the trade basket is, is much larger than, than just energy products. Um, and of course, the Chinese interest in Pakistan, the Chinese-Pakistan uh, Economic Corridor, the CPEC project, um, the initial about $45, $46 billion of projects which have meant to be implemented, those are roughly equivalent to all foreign direct investment in Pakistan since 1970, right? So this is a massive influx of capital, a massive reshaping um, of the entire region of which Pakistan is one part of that vision, um, and a somewhat small one, but very um, important impact in, in the domestic economy. As I, know, as I mentioned, Pakistan has um, a kind of limited electricity generation capacity. Um, about 16% is in oil, uh, uh, LNG about 26%, coal about 9%. So they're trying to shift that energy mix, as lots of other places are as well, including the Gulf states. So this is why nuclear energy is so important to a country like the UAE and Saudi Arabia, because you want to be able to monetize that asset in the ground and get it out and sell it and turn it into something else as quickly as possible. Um, 
Saudi Arabia, I think, in the future would like to also compete with Qatar and be a natural gas supplier to Pakistan. Um, so this is a bit of competition there. The failure of the pipeline from Iran creates opportunity um, for all of the Gulf states that are gas suppliers. Um, I should also mention that Qatar and China are co-investors in a gas-fired um, electricity plant in Pakistan. So there, there are a number of relationships which now within the GCC dispute for Pakistan require some, uh, some difficult balancing as well. Um, I put a lot out there. I really look forward to more discussion and expertise of, uh, of the ambassador too. So thank you. Thank you, Karen. Alex, over to you. Thanks. Thank you, Ambassador Olson. It's great to be here. Um, much has already been said. Uh, I'll be focusing on the Iranian angle, uh, but if I could quickly just react to two things that were said earlier about Pakistan pursuing a policy of neutra neutrality. Um, I think from Tehran's perspective, you could argue that if you look at the period from 1979 onwards, that first decade in relations, you could talk about genuine Pakistani effort to be neutral in the rivalry that existed then, because this is an important point. This Saudi-Iranian rivalry is not something that was born yesterday. On the case of Iran, it goes back all the way to 1979. And the Pakistanis genuinely did perform a pretty neutral role back then. Um, Ziaul Haq was asked repeatedly by the Saudis, cut Iran loose so the Iranians will be defeated in the Iran-Iraq war. What did Pakistan do? Instead, they opened up the port of Karachi for Iranian merchandise goods. Uh, the Pakistanis did not want to fight um, the, the war of the Arabs, if you will, against Iran. And this is a theme I will come back to again and again because simply their biggest goal in life, if you will, certainly in terms of national security interest, is the relationship and power parity with the Indians. And they want to keep that eastern border with Iran to the extent that I understand this, uh, the relationship, quiet. They don't want to have it to be troubled the way they have their Afghan border being troubled or certainly their uh, troubled relations with India. And another thing, I think Karen mentioned this, uh, on the issue of what is this latest Saudi initiative all about? Uh, what's the visit all about to Mohammed bin Salman and other senior um, Saudi officials? Again, I'm giving you the Iranian perspective. They don't look at this in terms of Saudi Arabia only looking for a greater market share in Asia because people are going to have more monies in their pockets in years to come, and Saudi Arabia wants to sort of capitalize on that. I think the Iranians look at the enmity uh, of Saudi Arabia towards Tehran as a key component of these Saudi overtures to countries like Pakistan. To give you an example, Iranian media are full of, uh, you know, of, um, reports about how third-party companies from countries like South Korea and so on, China and others, are oftentimes told quietly by the Saudis, if you do invest in that project in Iran, we're going to cut you loose. Uh, you know, uh, and that, I think, from, from an Iranian perspective, to be expected is part of the rivalry with the Saudis. But they don't look at Saudi Arabia's efforts in South Asia simply because of commercial calculations. Uh, I'm going to make a couple of quick points, uh, if I may. I'm going to talk about should Iran really care about what's going on between Pakistan and the GCC states? Um, what's in the way of Iran-Pakistan relations? Um, why is there so much promising on the part of Tehran and Islam 
Islamabad and so little delivery, in fact. And then I have a couple of wild cards at the end just to uh, hopefully get us to discuss those at the end. But look, if you're sitting in Tehran and you just saw the Saudi officials visit Islamabad, you ask yourself the question, why is this any different from the last time we had senior Saudi officials in Islamabad? If you remember in January of 2016, Foreign Minister Jubair uh, was shortly followed by uh, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman. There was talk of closer ties then. Uh, they even had those meetings with uh, Nawaz Sharif, a man that from an Iranian perspective is very close to the Saudis. I mean, if you're sitting in Tehran, no Pakistani leader arguably is as close to the Saudis as Nawaz Sharif. And yet Nawaz Sharif didn't really deliver much to the, to the Saudis. We heard earlier how the Pakistanis had turned the Saudis down on the question of deploying troops to, uh, to Yemen. And they continue to do that uh, and have continued to do that ever since. Um, not only Yemen, I would also make the point, because this didn't come up, but it should come up, Pakistan has overwhelmingly stayed out of what Iran does in the rest of the region. There is no really Pakistani voice of criticism against Iran in terms of what Tehran is doing in Iraq, in Syria, and elsewhere. And in fact, you could take that argument further. Pakistan doesn't even really publicly make much of noise when thousands of Pakistanis are recruited by the Islamic Republic as militiamen and sent to Syria and Iraq. And I think for, for my uh, position of looking at the situation, Pakistan thinks that's, that's not worth fighting over. Thousands of Pakistanis have over the last five, six years been recruited by the Islamic Revolution Guard Corps and deployed in battlefields of Iraq and Syria. That's not an issue of diplomatic concern for the Pakistanis. I think that right there tells you a lot about what role Pakistan genuinely can play for Saudi Arabia in the so-called Sunni world against Shia Iran. I don't think the Pakistanis want to be part of that fight. You heard some of the arguments. There's a sectarian dimension within Pakistan. 20% Shia sounds like a, perhaps a small minority, but at a country of 210, 15 million people, you can just imagine if it goes uh, out of control what the consequences could be. We heard the name of General Rahal Sharif before. He did become the Islamic Military Counterterrorism Coalition head, but as I said before, I've seen no evidence that they've actually done anything on the ground. And I think that's how the Iranians look at it, that this is a lot of noise, a lot of show, a lot of ceremonies, but in reality, nobody's coming after Iran right now, certainly not the Pakistanis. Um, in, in places like Iraq and Syria, where the real fight for the future of the region right now is taking place. So what's in the way of Iran-Pakistan relations? Look, there's much in common. There's the, the geography proximity, there's historic proximity, there's a lot more that you can talk about in terms of the two countries being closer. And I would probably argue, if you look at it, the totality of history, Pakistan and Iran are a lot closer than Pakistan is with the Gulf Arab states. Obviously, uh, you know, much has changed in recent decades, but if you look at the totality of relations going back to the creation of Pakistan, there's a lot more there between Iran and Pakistan than, say, Pakistan and, um, and the Gulf states. But even before 1979, even before the days of the Shah, which is very curious, everything is security-centric. It's about personalities, in the case of Iran, the Shah, who like Pakistan, who believed Pakistan was a big uh, player in containing the Soviet Union. And in many ways, he turned out to be right because the Soviet Union did invade Afghanistan in December 1979. Uh, and the Shah um, has, in, in the shape of people like Benazir Bhutto, like-minded folks who also are anti-Soviet, 
And I think that relationship stays alive all the way up, in my view, uh, as part of my research, up to until 1971. And basically, the Shah one day wakes up and realizes, you know what? My buddies in Pakistan are engaged in a war they will never win. They're never going to win against India. And if I, Iran, wants to play a bigger role in Asia, or certainly in West Asia, it's, um, it's short-sighted of me to put all my eggs in the basket of, of the Pakistanis. So the Shah turns around and it goes from the mode where he supports militarily, financially, diplomatically. He was Pakistan's man in many ways in Washington during the days of Henry Kissinger. He would speak on behalf of the Pakistanis. He goes from that mode to, listen, you guys can't win this war against the Indians. I'm not going to help you have another war. And he doesn't until he's toppled himself in 1979. And I would argue when people discuss Iranian-Pakistani relations, oftentimes the starting point in 1979 when Khomeini taking over, that is the wrong way of looking at it. Relations really have a turning point in the late 60s and in 1971. Two things happen. In late 1960s, Ayub Khan, the leader of Pakistan then, is basically very um, attracted to these new emerging Gulf states and all the monies that they have. He sees that as the way Pakistan can build up its armed forces against the Indians. Uh, we can get into that if people are interested. Um, Bhutto makes it even worse in the sense that he kind of almost puts his good friend, the Shah, aside uh, in favor of the Gulf Arab uh, uh, and the monies that they could bring to the table. And I think this is uh, the moment where the Shah of Iran realizes uh, that he had to really pursue an, a, a policy of neutra neutrality between, uh, in the war between Pakistan and India. Um, 1979 certainly doesn't make relations better. Ayatollah Khomeini coming in and in his first day in office literally calling the Pakistani leader um, Ziaul Haq the fake one doesn't help relations and I, I think the relations really started off badly and the Pakistanis have never come over that. I never forget reading the cables about description of Pakistanis, of Iranian officials who so just taken over after the Shah, calling them amateurs. And you know what? The Pakistanis were very right. They were amateurs in Tehran in 1979. They made all sorts of foreign policy mistakes. And I think their attitude towards Pakistan was certainly one of them. Um, so uh, I will just say a few more words here. I don't want to talk, speak too much. Uh, the reality today is this. If you're sitting in Islamabad, what can Iran bring to the table for you? Money? They don't have any. Arms? They don't have any. Diplomatic clout for you on the international stage? They're struggling themselves. What are they going to do for you? So really, if you're sitting in Pakistan, you would love the day where Iran becomes another normal state. But as of today, the Iranians really can't do much for you. And particularly not if your mission in life is, as I said, parity with India. And that's where the Pakistanis are. I don't think uh, this is any different today with Imran Khan than it was under Nawaz Sharif. And I say the same thing, though, which is a big question. They have um, been able to be neutral for all these years. The question going forward is, depending on what happens between Iran and Saudi Arabia, can Pakistan maintain the neutrality uh, that it has been able to keep? So if you have another case of another Yemen situation where the Saudis will once again come and knock on the door of the Pakistanis and ask for help. Can the Pakistanis continue turning down? I'm not a Pakistani hand, but I think that's a question for the Iranians to also to worry about. I give you one example, by the way, because one of the things, if you really want to understand where we are in terms of overpromising and little action on the ground between Iran and Pakistan, it's this political lack of trust in one another. For 25 years, Iran and Pakistan have been talking about one gas pipeline. 
one gas pipeline, Marvin Weinbaum here has written on this issue for so long, knows what I'm talking about, and do, as do others, Fatima Amman and others, which I'm delighted to see in the crowd. Why has it taken Iran and Pakistan 25 years, and still that pipeline goes from the Persian Gulf and stops at the Iran-Pakistan border because the Pakistanis haven't built their side of the a pipeline. Instead, they've gone to Qatar and now talking to the Gulf Arab states for energy cooperation. The only way I can explain that is lack of political trust and pressure from outsiders, including the United States, but not to mention the Saudis. You know, Iran decided less than five years ago to supply gas to Iraq. Today, Iraq gets about 20% of its electricity through Iranian gas. When there's political will, there's action. 25 years in Iran and Pakistan haven't really moved the ball forward, and I don't see it going forward anytime soon. One uh, other point, too, because this was also mentioned, how many more times can the Iranians sit there and take these attacks happening on their border, which Iran claims are being conducted by groups that are based in Pakistan? Jaisal Adl is based in Pakistan, and the Iranians are keep, keep asking the Pakistanis to do more. Nothing's happening. Now, this might seem ominous, that Iran might decide to take action, unilateral action, and one is a nuclear-armed country, the other one's a nuclear threshold country. This could get ugly. And yet, I have to take a step back as an analyst and say, actually, periodic attacks like we saw on the 13th of February have been going on as early as 2004. The Iranians and the Pakistanis don't like what's happening, but they seem to be okay to live with it, at least for now. All right, I'll stop in by just pointing out three issues that I think anybody who watches Iran-Pakistan relations in the, in the short term should, should be looking at. Look at the port of Chabahar and what happens to it. This is a strategic port, not just for Iran, but also for India. This could be a big uh, game changer for India's way of getting to Central Asia. How will Delhi continue to push for this project? From what I understand, the Indians really pushed hard the Trump administration to get an exemption so they can continue investing in Chabahar despite the Trump administration's maximum pressure on Iran. And yet the Indians got an exemption for Chabahar. How do we explain that? How much did the Indians have to fight for that? And, and that tells you how much, how keen they are on the future of the port of Chabahar. What will Pakistan do to undermine that port? Could we see uh, moments where the port, uh, the projects that are tied to the port will come under military attack by some of these groups that the Iranians claim Pakistan is behind? Again, that could become a flashpoint uh, that might go uh, in a new direction and, and make the situation worse than it is. Future of U.S. and Afghanistan. That is a big one. I mean, from everything I can tell, the U.S. is about to get out of Afghanistan. Last time the U.S. got out, if you will, or no superpower was present, that's when Iran and Pakistan really came to blows on Afghan soil. You literally have the only moment where Iran and Pakistan are, are going nearly to war with another in 98 is because of events in Afghanistan. And I, I think power of vacuum in Afghanistan will make the situation riskier in, in uh, Iranian Pakistani relations. And then the final point I make, and this is something that has already been mentioned, Karen mentioned in as well, the role of China. In the 60s and 70s, the United States played the role of bringing Iran and Pakistan together as part of the sort of Western efforts, the anti-Soviet efforts, if you will, against the Soviet Union. That in many ways worked to some extent. I mean, you had organizations like CENTO and so forth. There was cooperation. The United States today isn't really that actor in West Asia. China could be that player. And the Chinese, 
probably will have um, going forward because of the situation with US and, and Iran have more or less a free hand in terms of what they can get the Iranians to do. So I am very curious to see how far China is willing to go to push Pakistan and Iran towards one another. I don't know what chi Chinese calculations are, but to me it seems like open space um, for China and uh, perhaps they can, they can uh, push Iran and Pakistan in ways that uh, no one has been able to push them towards each other um, since 1979. Let me stop there and thank okay. you. Thank you, Alex. Um, so we'll shortly go to, uh, to questions and answers, but um, I thought uh, I might kick off the discussion by asking the panelists um, each uh, one question, uh, which is, I, I think we heard from all of them that whatever the historic roots of the uh, conflict between Iran and the Gulf countries, it does seem to be intensifying uh, of late. Uh, and I think we also heard from all the panelists that Pakistan has been successful in, if not neutrality, at least straddling uh, that particular conflict. And I guess the question I would ask is how long will Pakistan be able to continue to straddle uh, that particular conflict? Will they be successful? And to complicate the question, I want to throw in a little factoid because there has been an allusion to Pakistan's ethnic uh, makeup and 20% Shia, which of course is you know, um, a kind of a notional figure. Uh, it's more acute than that because it, he, I think the particular concern is the army, which is clearly the most powerful institution in Pakistan, has always worried about the fact that it has Shia soldiers, Shia officers, as well as Sunni, and hasn't really had any problem managing that particular conflict. I'm not aware that there's been any conflict within the army itself. And so it has a large stake in pre preventing that kind of conflict developing. So against all of that backdrop, I'd like to ask each of those, um, each of the panelists, what they think. Is Pakistan gonna be forced to choose sides in the intensifying conflict in the Middle East um, in a way that it hasn't had to uh, before. Ankit? Sure. Um, yeah, happy to, happy to pick up on that question. Um, I, think, I think, you know, the first thing I'll say is that in the process of studying the relationships between these three countries and particularly how Pakistan's approached them, you know, I walk away with the observation that the military is obviously a central institution in driving these relationships, and that conversely, that makes it really difficult to have strong views on what exactly is driving Pakistan because it's so difficult to sometimes um, get a sense of you know what the ISI and the military are really thinking about these things. Right? We have very little kind of open source evidence, and this is maybe something that also comes up with the you know Islamic Military Counterterrorism Coalition. You know, Rahil Sharif has given kind of public statements about that what's actually going on behind the scenes. So I think what you said is actually an unanswered question to which the answer, I think, matters deeply. Um, because I think as we heard correctly earlier, Pakistan, you know, the Pakistani army's kind of raison d'etre and overarching strategic goal is to continue to resist India, seek parity with India, and if, if Saudi Arabia and Iran can assist in, in that endeavor, or at least not inhibit it, then I think that's what they're looking for. And I think we see that more with Iran on the inhibition side where we have kind of direct Pakistani concerns about the nature of what Iran might be doing in Balochistan. Chabahar is something I didn't really speak about, but I think that's absolutely um, a new and relevant dynamic. And I think U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA coupled with the Trump administration's, um, I guess, 
sort of maximum pressure approach to Pakistan now, um, really is throwing everything out of equilibrium. Um, and in the short term, I think there's actually going to be a very, it's going to be a very difficult task for Pakistan to, um, to find, first of all, value in a deeper relationship with Iran um, and resist what the Saudis have to offer, right? The one thing that Iran has going for it, though, is that it's right there on the border, that it, it is an unchanging feature of Pakistan's strategic environment. Pakistan can't wish for a different neighbor on its, uh, on its western front, so it has to live with Iran. Uh, but the question is, you know, what happens, um, what happens if, you know, let's say a successive U.S. administration re-enters the JCPOA and the relationship with Iran and the United States begins to change again? Iran sees sanctions relief, Chabahar, either, you know, Chabahar still, I think, maybe does get overstated a little bit. It still has the potential to entirely fizzle as an, as an Indian strategic initiative. Um, and I think a lot of that depends because, the, you know, the big bet the Indians are making in Chabahar is that Afghanistan will have a successful kind of economic future and that the Chabahar route will be a ever-growing sort of source of trade activity that the Indians will uh, primarily benefit from on a personal level, but also will pay dividends for the stability of Afghanistan. And what happens after American withdrawal if those assumptions don't hold? Um, so, I mean, I guess my, my overall takeaway is that uh, I have a pretty pessimistic view on Pakistan's ability to actually maintain neutrality. I mean, you'll, uh, you'll notice that in my original remarks, I want to say that Pakistan sort of projects neutrality, but I don't think it's actually been successful in convincing strategic elites in Tehran especially that it is a neutral player. Thanks. Um, Karen, I'd like to get your take, and maybe you can help us um, understand to what extent there is pressure from the Saudis and the other Gulfies to choose and to, and to yeah. sharpen the choice. I, don't, I mean, I think, as Alex said, Iran has very little to offer right now. I mean, things could change, but for the near term, I mean, the, the investment opportunity, the ability to create stability domestically in Pakistan, is, uh, is looking for Gulf and Chinese support. Um, and Iran's not part of that. Chabahar is not, is, has like six berths. It's like a tiny port, it's nothing. Um, so I just don't think that's that interesting. The Indians are fully operating it. Um, the gas pipeline, now Iran and Pakistan are, are, have a legal dispute. Um, so there may be some, actually the, the Pakistanis may have to pay Iran for the failure to construct uh, their part. So I mean, th there's, there's nothing good to um, to wait and hope for things to change in Iran. And if they do, great. But that's a long, long way away. Thanks. Alex, your take? Sure. I, I just wanted to put out one statistic just on the economic side, which I always find fascinating. Pakistan is one of Iran's 15 immediate neighbors, arguably the smallest of Iran's immediate neighbors, the country of Armenia, Christian <coughs> Armenia. Iran and Armenia trade uh, the same amount that Iran trades with Pakistan. Country, so Armenia's population is about 100 times smaller than Pakistan. I mean, just to give you perspective in ter or, or how, how you have to look at the relationship, how low you're starting. But Ambassador Olson, to your point about where could sectarianism go in terms of Iran and Pakistan, uh, I took a Quick note here, first point that comes to my mind is the only time Iran really played a assertive, aggressive, concerning uh, game of, of pursuing a sectarian agenda is the 1980s, uh, where the Iranians really do focus on, on trying to recruit as many of the Pakistani Shias as they can. Those days are long gone. 
I, I don't see the Iranians having the will uh, to do anything like that. Because that was the wild days of Iranian foreign policy. That's when they were all around in the region doing all sorts of things. Some of them were successful from their perspective. I mean, that's when they created Hezbollah in Lebanon, and it stuck, it stayed. Uh, but I don't see how the Iranians will today, 2019, look at those 20% Shia population of, of Pakistan, a majority of whom I'm sure are much more secular leaning than believers in the Velayat al-Fari, the supreme leadership concept that the Iranian system is all about, which is a man-made concept that is only 40 years old. Most Shias in the world do not subscribe to it at all. Iranian people are, by and large, not interested in any pursuit of sectarian agendas in the region. If you look at the protest in Iran, whenever Iranians are out, up in arms and angry at their government, it's because of foreign policy adventurism on the banners of proxies in, in Syria and Iraq and so forth. So I don't see the Tehran having the confidence to want to go after a sectarian agenda in Pakistan, particularly as strong. I mean, this we should remember from Iran's perspective, it's a neighboring state with whatever it is, 200 nuclear warheads. It's it's that that has to be remembered. It's a nuclear-powered state. Now, those missiles with the nuclear warheads aren't aimed at Iran, but still, it's a nuclear-armed state. But one final point, and I'll stop. The modus operandi of the Iranian regime from day one when it comes to spreading the sectarian or the ideological message has always been the same. Find vacuum. If there is vacuum, Iran has usually been pretty good at filling that vacuum in, in the Middle East. So if the Pakistani state becomes weaker and there's vacuum for outsiders to come in and play a role, I'm sure Iran would be among those outsiders trying to find a way to come in. But that requires vacuum, because I don't think the Iranians have an attractive blueprint that appeals to Shia Pakistanis today where Iran could say, you know what, let me pursue a sectarian agenda. I don't think, I don't think we're there right now. I'd love to hear your assessment, actually, Ambassador. I mean, we've talked about the risk to Pakistan of, of the outside, but I think mm -hmm. we should flip it. What's the risk to the outside That's states right. of Pakistan? We had to bring you in now. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah we, I, we have to hear. Yeah, okay, thank you, Karen. Um, I think um, that the case has been made pretty compellingly uh, today uh, that the advantages to um, Pakistan lie primarily with, the, uh, with uh, more alignment with the Gulf countries. Um, but I think this, this question of sectarianism continues to loom large, and perhaps not exactly for the reason that you suggested, Alex. I mean, I, I, would, I would accept your judgment that maybe Iran uh, doesn't, or Tehran doesn't want to play an activist role in fomenting problems inside of Pakistan uh, today in the way that they may have in the past. But the concern, I think, is a different one from the perspective of at least uh, the Pakistani army, which is that to the extent Pakistan becomes explicitly aligned right. with a, uh, the Sunni powers uh, of the Gulf uh, that the Shia officers and soldiers will feel disenfranchised and they will create a sectarian conflict on its own without regardless of outside influence <laughs> inside uh, uh, the Pakistan military. So I think, you know, I guess my, my sense on this is that Pakistan will continue to try uh, to straddle. Um, and in fact, some of the things that have been done already, it seems to me that the, um, the appointment uh, of Raheel Sharif 
uh, was in a, in a way a very clever attempt at straddling because he was appointed after he retired. Um, and the thing I would be watching for in Saudi Arabia right now, and in particular in the conflict of Yemen or anything else that's a hot conflict, is not the presence of Pakistani troops, but rather retired Pakistani soldiers because there's an extensive network of retiree organizations in Pakistan that recruit ex-Jawans all the way up to generals and, and ship them off into other conflicts. And so I think um, to the extent that becomes more prevalent uh, and becomes more visible, which I think Pakistan will make every effort to make sure it is not, uh, that's, that's when the, the sectarian challenge will potentially arise. So I, I, I see it as all kind of hard choices for Pakistan, frankly. Yes. Yeah, just one more note on the Raheel Sharif uh, at the uh, Islamic Military Counterterrorism Coalition. Um, when that announcement was made, it actually caught the Pakistani civilian leadership off guard. Uh, the mm -hmm. Pakistani uh, foreign secretary, I believe, was interviewed by Don newspaper about, uh, about Pakistan's participation in the, in the coalition. And he was just befuddled. He was like, I don't, um, we'll have to get back to you. There's some kind of, um, the quotes in the report, but it's, you know, he was just caught off guard. Um, and, and that to me actually suggested that uh, this was something that, you know, Rahil Sharif in his capacity as chief of army staff, he had just been to Saudi Arabia, I believe. This was something that was sort of handled by the military through the channels that exist with Saudi Arabia. And of course then, you know, uh, his retirement, there was sort of a pall hanging over whether he was gonna extend his term or actually retire after his three-year term expired, and then he had that out into the Saudi coalition. So I think that was the Pakistani military sort of stepping in and doing what had to be done, so to speak. It was revenge for Nawaz having surprised the military when he went to Riyadh in 2015 <laughs> <laughs> and made a commitment. So anyway, um, why don't we open it up uh, to the audience. Um, uh, delighted to take your questions. Please identify yourself uh, by name and affiliation. Here, please. Yeah, we have mics coming. Donna Takawi, Embassy of Bahrain. Uh, my question is regarding uh, MESA, the Middle East Strategic Alliance. Do you think that'll deepen the rift between the Gulf countries and Iran, and will that have an effect on Pakistan and whether they will you know, maintain their neutrality? Will that even be possible? Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear your take on that. Thank you. Anybody wanna or take several questions? Or? Yeah, well, okay, we'll take uh, we'll take two or three. Okay, I think there was a question here. Yeah, Masoodullah uh, Khalid from Voice of America. My question was about the CPAC and Saudi's role over there. Would that be uh, comfortable for India at the same point in time? If we look into the Jahabagh on one side and Gawadar on the other side, though Jahabagh is tiny enough to, to make any difference or any impact it for the time being, and how exactly Iranians are taking it uh, when we, we are seeing like uh, Iran is asking for some more details on what exactly we can call it insurgency within, within the borders and that. Thank you. The gentleman in the vest here. Hi, uh, Phil Schrafer, former active duty Marine and a retired international healthcare consultant. I have a question on weaponry about Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. Uh, Bob Graham, the former senator from Florida, wrote a novel once where Saudi Arabia tries to get an atomic bomb. Does uh, Saudi Arabia have any arrangements with Pakistan to get a bomb? Second question, hypersonic missiles. Um, the Chinese and the Russians have developed these. The only 
possible country in this much would be Iran possibly has that missile technology. Is there any possibility that they would acquire a hypersonic missile? Okay, so we have um, three questions. Uh, first on uh, uh, the, the question of whether Pakistan will be able to maintain its neutrality, um, uh, one on CPEC, and uh, third on weapons. Any volunteers? I'll take the MESA question. Um, well, I mean, Pakistan's not part of it, but it, this, this, like other kind of regional attempts at security architecture, has not been very successful. Um, there are as many hesitancies from the Egyptians and the Jordanians of what it means to be a part of this, um, uh, this group. Uh, and so I think for a lot of countries, it's creating some discomfort because clearly it does have an initiative which is anti-Iran or confronting Iran at its core, um, whether we spell that out directly at the U.S. State Department or not, but that's clearly its intention, um, in my view. So I, I think, it, yeah, it makes, it makes it difficult for um, lots of countries which would, that do have good relationships with each other um, to more or less choose sides. Add to, to, to that, if I may, I mean, I think there's 41 states in that coalition. And they, in MESA, uh, no. Not in MESA, I'm, I'm talking about the uh, anti-terrorism The ICMTC. Coalition. Thank you for that acronym, I forget that one. I think it's 41 states in that coalition. Depends really what the mission is. If the mission becomes, as Karen said, another anti-Iran, you will see countries fall off. I don't think a country like Oman, which is technically part of it, which lives to balance Saudi Arabia and Iran, would want to be part of that coalition. So it all comes down to, when we talk about extremism, are we just talking about Iran and Shia proxies that Iran is known to support? Or are we talking about all forms of extremism? Because I think that's where, you know, but by definition, you will always have a problem, but who, who's defining the extremist, right? Um, I will also say on, um, on, on the military to military ties, if I may, I don't have any specifics for you. I, uh, what I do know is throughout the 1980s, Pakistan did support Iran militarily to the extent that the Iranians could pay for it. There were, you know, um, Pakistani, uh, because so much of what Pakistan and Iran had was basically from the same source, the United States. And a lot of these Pakistani-Iranian uh, military folks knew each other from the days where Iran and Pakistan were both on good terms in the United States. So if you went to, Air For uh, to Shiraz Air Force Base, the Pakistanis in the 80s were training Iranian pilots in one form or another. The Pakistanis did supply some arms to the Iranians in the 1980s, including uh, seized American weaponry that... Um, Seize is not the word. The American weaponry that had been given to the Afghan Mujahideen that somehow ended up in the hands of the Iranians during the Iran-Iraq war. And Pakistan would have played a role in that, I'm sure. But in the big picture of things, um, despite what you hear, if you read the news, the Pakistani Navy often visits and they have joined drills with the Iranian Navy in the Arabian Sea and so on. But what does it amount to? I think it's token gestures uh, to prove that we're neutral, we're friendly, but really deep down, I want to go back to a point I made before. There is a total lack of political trust between Pakistan and Iran. And I think that is the case as of today. I'll say a little bit on the nuclear weapons question specifically. Um, 
So yes, there is this idea out there that Saudi Arabia has inherently made a down payment on quote unquote an Islamic bomb. Um, I want to push back against that a little bit. I think there are a lot of reasons why Pakistan would not want to transfer nuclear material. Um, we have heard from Karen about Saudi Arabia's uh, investments uh, since the 1980s in ballistic missiles. And the DF-3, which is the Chinese ballistic missile, it's a medium range ballistic missile, about the same range capability that the Iranians possess. Um, it's not a very precise missile. And uh, if you're using conventional munitions with inaccurate missiles, um, they're militarily not very useful, um, especially at those long ranges. So that has sort of long been seen as an evidence that the Saudis have left the door open to put nuclear packages on top of those ballistic missiles. Um, but why wouldn't the Pakistanis want to proliferate to Saudi Arabia? Well, the first thing is, if we go back to that Indian question, uh, there are some very interesting trends in recent years uh, in South Asia, with the nuclear balance in South Asia specifically, that I think have left the Pakistanis very concerned about the size of their nuclear arsenal. India has been investing in missile defense technologies, better intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. And I think that leaves the Pakistanis feeling like uh, the number of nuclear weapons that they have is actually either insufficient or at the bare level of sufficiency for their deterrence. So shipping off a bomb or shipping off fissile material to Saudi Arabia would be a very, very significant cost for the Pakistani military to bear. Um, and you know, some of the other evidence that's on, on the public record, uh, there's one famous uh, set of testimonies from a Saudi diplomat in the United States who defected, and he, uh, he publicly testified to American officials uh, that there were all sorts of arrangements. Um, but generally, his testimony isn't taken to be the most credible source of information about what arrangements might exist between the two countries. Uh, so I'd say on the, on the nuclear proliferation front, uh, it's, it, it's best to be cautious. Of course, there are lower levels of proliferations that the Pakistanis could uh, offer assistance to Saudi Arabia with, with designs, even if they don't actually send any material over. And I think that's been one of the concerns uh, on the other side of the 123 agreement with Saudi Arabia, which is why that agreement needs to be negotiated with the highest non-proliferation standards uh, today uh, as, that's, as that process is occurring. On uh, hypersonic missiles, um, I, I don't really see a role for those. I mean, the primary reason you'd want those is to deal with ballistic, ballistic missile defense and uh, Indian capabilities and regional capabilities more generally uh, remain pretty rudimentary. Even the Patriot systems that the Saudis have um, can be overcome and have been overcome actually by the very rudimentary SCUD-derived missiles that the Houthis use. So uh, I think, I think you know, none of these countries are probably going to be best off putting their money in the hypersonics basket for now. Okay. Did anyone want to touch on the CPEC question? I think we still had a question on the role of uh, China and how, uh, India. how it, China, India, and, and how um, Iran was likely to react. Yeah. Um, I mean, all I can tell you from, from Iranian perspective, Chabahar today, the biggest companies registered in Chabahar are Afghans. Afghan companies are most registered. About out of 300 companies registered operating out of Chabahar, uh, about 170 or so Afghans. The second largest are not Indians, are Pakistani companies. And the most cargo from Chabahar today goes to Karachi. Uh, and people forget that. So it's not, and I would say the Iranians, it might be small, I agree, but the Iranians look at Chabahar as a potential rival to Jebel Ali in UAE. This is Iran's only deep port sea, which the Shah of Iran in the 70s started fixing so the US Navy could come and dock there. But that was before Khomeini took over. So this, this, is a, this is a half a century old project. It's not a new idea. It's been going on. There's a lot of logic behind it. And if you're India, and again, you also want to watch Russian relations because part of Chabahar's um, attractiveness for, for India is 
it's going to be connected to the South-North Corridor, so which means links India all the way to Germany and, you know, Europe. And the Iranians this last week finished the last 165 kilometers of rail network that connects Iranian Astara, the city of Astara, to Azerbaijan, which was the missing link. So we talk about infrastructure, and we haven't really talked about one belt, one road, but look at the map. The Chinese, pro the Chinese a trillion dollar allegedly commitment to infrastructure projects across Eurasia. Iran is at the heart of it. Iran is at the heart of it, both in terms of maritime and land uh, route. So I, I would be um, saying to you, Chabahar right now is still punching way below its you know, potential, but it could go places uh, because it, it, it has a lot of logic to it that goes back to, as I said, early 70s. Thanks, Hans. God. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot to go around, right? So I think you know, these are such massive investments, and they can be partnered with uh, with national firms, right? And there's so many you know, in the scale of production. There, there's so many ways to enter. Um, exactly, but but much beyond that as well. And, and a lot of the firms, like I mentioned, Parco is one firm, you know, of uh, Adnoc Investment, which is now Mobile Investment inside of Pakistan. That's one way to model, and I, if if the if the Indians got a little smarter about their own kind of state initiatives, they would start doing some of that as well. Yeah, I would just say on CPEC, it, it is difficult. Um, it, it, CPEC is not very transparent and not very easy to uh, find out what's going on and to actually participate in. Um, at various points, the U.S. has expressed interest, not under the current administration, in sort of at least aligning some of its assistance with CPAC, and it was very difficult to do in practice uh, because of those uh, uh, the non-transparency. I suspect it will be difficult for uh, Saudi and Gulf investors, for the same reasons, to align too much with CPAC. They'll probably wind up doing things that are adjacent to, rather than actually part of the of the corridor, although in theory the economic zones under CPAC are open to anyone. Okay, another question? I think we have the gentleman in the back. Yeah, hello. Uh, my name is Khalid Burr. I'm a Deputy Chief of Mission of the Arab League here in Washington, and uh, I'd like to thank you for your interventions. And uh, I would just like to maybe uh, derail a bit from the title of the of how Pakistan can navigate the Saudi Arabian and Irani relationship and just try to maybe get you to tell me what you feel about China's role maybe in the next 10 years in terms of playing an impact in this kind of uh, relationship. I know China is very invested now economically in the region. I know because I worked in the energy department 10 years ago and I know that they're working very aggressively on renewable energy and that's something that the Arab states have started giving attention to recently. So I'm just wondering, can they navigate from economy to politics, and can they play a role in conflicts that have perpetuated for a long time? Thank you. I, I mean, I'll be very brief. I think so much will depend on the future of Chinese-American relations. Uh, you know, right now, for the last many years, and Ambassador Olson would love to hear your thoughts on this, uh, the Chinese uh, were happy to have the United States take care of security. They were getting whatever it is. 30, 40% of their oil 
um, you know, from, from the region, and U.S. was uh, providing security for free. Um, good deal, a good deal for China, right? And the Chinese are now, I, I'm pretty safe in saying, Karen, please correct me on this, uh, the biggest trading partner uh, for the region as a whole. Certainly the biggest trading partner of Iran, that I know. One-third of Iran's overall trade is with one country called China, right? Um, one test to look out for is what China might do in Syria. If the Chinese are interested to kind of give the U.S. a bloody nose, if you will, and they want to go with the likes of Iran and Russia in consolidating Assad's rule in Syria, at some point somebody has to do some reconstruction work, and that requires money. The Iranians don't have it. The Russians probably don't have much of it either. The Chinese do. I think that might be a bit of a test for how China comes in because that's not theory. That's not in the abstract. That's when you suddenly are hitting the ground. You are bringing those Chinese engineers and whatever it is you, t you need to rebuild. And I think that in, in itself will make a big statement. But as I said, we have to wait and, and see what happens there. Um, yeah, I would say that uh, it, clearly the question is right that China is you know, the emerging factor. Um, and, and a huge emerging factor, and I think will ultimately help to frame how the United States, for its policy, thinks about Pakistan. Um, I think in five years, uh, for the last 20 years, we have tended to frame our approach, uh, the U.S. approach to Pakistan, through uh, Afghanistan. And I think as we enter whatever endgame is, and the endgame is in Afghanistan, uh, we will increasingly be looking uh, to Pakistan in terms of uh, whether it's competition or cooperation uh, of its relationship with, um, uh, with China. Um, and I would suggest in terms of Chinese intentions, I agree that on Syria, it, but there's one that's much closer to home, which is Afghanistan, the home we're talking about today. Uh, because um, China has been from the U.S. perspective, a free rider, especially in Afghanistan. It has been able to make investments in Afghanistan, haven't really come to fruition, but it's been able to make at least, you know, in principle, the investment in Mount Sinai, um, uh, and has not played an active role in the provision of security in Afghanistan. Uh, that may be changing. I mean, China has greater interest now in Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, with regard to uh, to security matters, but I think the question will be whether, um, and again, depending on how the Afghan endgame goes, but let us assume that there is a political settlement and, um, and some measure of peace and prosperity returns to Afghanistan, however heroic an assumption that is, uh, would uh, China be prepared to extend the Belt and Road Initiative to Afghanistan? Currently, Afghanistan is not a part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and it also, like Iran, sits in the heart of Asia. And it's kind of hard to imagine connectivity without Afghanistan. Uh, so these are, these are very important questions. I'll just plug a recent paper I wrote called The Gulf's Eastward Turn on this exact question of, of um, the Gulf Arab states and, and relations with China. And I would also point to Mohammed bin Salman's visit to China in which when he met with President Xi, he said very explicitly that the Chinese um, domestic terrorism problem and the treatment of a million Muslims inside of detention facilities was a was a Chinese issue, and so it's not just that Chinese um, 
policy towards the Middle East is, is shifting, and I, there's a 2016 Arab policy paper which is explicitly puts out their policy, but also that the, the Gulf states in particular are willing to be more accommodative towards China. Um, and an understanding between authoritarian regimes that what you do inside your borders is your business, but we have shared interests and we can pursue those goals together, which is a very different approach than what uh, is a part of U.S. foreign policy to the region. One final thing to add. Uh, one thing to watch, I guess, over the next like 10 to 15 years with regard to the Belt and Road and continental Asia, uh, the heart of Asia region especially, is that we've, we're starting to see China acknowledge more of an appetite for overseas basing for a variety of reasons. Uh, we're seeing China play more of a role in at least what it says is a role in protecting the global commons with anti-piracy patrols in the Gulf of Aden. It has a base now in Djibouti. The Washington Post just uh, physically reported on uh, another base in Tajikistan. Uh, and uh, I think when we look at the region, um, we may see certain outcroppings of, of that nature pop up. It'll be very interesting to see where China decides to put those uh, resources down um, and if it will steer clear of you know, the Saudi-Iranian tensions, which I think will probably also persist over that same period of time. Okay, I think we're approaching uh, the end game of this uh, session. So uh, why don't we take a round of questions. I'll collect uh, however many are left. Marvin? Uh, Marvin Weinbaum of the Middle East Institute. Uh, if by design or accident there is a serious altercation between the United States and Iran uh, militarily. What would be the disposition of Pakistan in that event? And should we automatically assume that Saudi Arabia will be cheering on the United States and conceivably Israel in the match? Uh, hi, I'm Bilal from the Middle East Institute. So I wanted to come back to this issue of political mistrust between Pakistan and Iran. Uh, we already mentioned this recently, uh, a militant organization from Pakistan known as the JHL Adl carried out an attack in Iran. And this came just a few hours within another attack that was carried out in Indian administered Kashmir by another organization based in Pakistan. And both India and Iran immediately accused Pakistan, the Pakistani state of supporting these militant groups. Uh, what do you think is the extent of the Pakistani states for the, the Pakistani state's support for these groups, especially with respect to Iran? Uh, what objectives do you think the state would want to achieve in supporting militant organizations in the Sistan, Balochistan province in Iran? And how do you think this is going to change the dynamics between Iran, India, and Pakistan in the future? Thank you. Any other questions? If not, I think we'll go. All right, one, one last here, quickly, please. As Matt, up here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my question is sort of turning inward more to Pakistan. Um, oh, Kaylee Garwood with the Sindhi American Political Action Committee. Um, so with all of what's going on with Pakistan, with the um, countries and stuff, we're concerned more about the effect that this has on groups inside of um, Pakistan, such as the Sindhi and Baluchis. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit on that. Okay, uh, we have three questions. Um, okay. 
take uh, your pick, we Alex. Have, sure, I'm, I'll focus on the two first, if I may. Uh, and I know we're short of time, so Marvin, forgive me for just speculating out loud here, but a U.S. attack on Iran by choice or accidental, uh, what would Pakistan do? You know, I think on a governmental level, state level, the Pakistanis probably just going to have to sit and watch. I, I don't think, I can't expect them really refocusing because India is still India and that's what they care about. That's the thing. That was what I wanted to get. How the popular reaction, because I mean, Iran, whether we like it or not, among Pakistanis, from my visit to Pakistan, um, it's pretty popular. It's a pretty popular country with about average Pakistanis. I mean, there is a connection, definitely. So I don't know. That's the unknown, uh, Rumsfeldian unknown, unknown. I don't know what uh, and whether that's going to force Pakistan to actually have to do anything. But um, on the proxies, you know, it's interesting that both Iran and Pakistan basically have today the use of proxies, obviously without acknowledging it, uh, and definitely in the case of Pakistan, proxies is part of the foreign policy approach. So Iran, Iran's use of proxies in Syria and, uh, and Iraq and so on is proudly declared and advertised. They don't even hide from it. Pakistanis hide it more, but I think the consensus is, and I'd love to hear what others have to say about it, that is also part of their foreign policy. Um, the question is, what if their proxies, which so far have looked different directions, turn on each other? And could you imagine a situation where, um, you know, Iran could start supporting groups inside Pakistan to carry out attacks the way they kind of did in the 1980s, right? Could, could we see a resurgence of that? Um, I don't know. I, as I said, I want to go back to my answer about Iran's uh, willingness to go down the path of sectarianism one more time. Uh, but I, I, I just think it's very curious, interesting to see both Iran and Pakistan, one way or another, are using proxies today, different uh, arenas, not against each other. The question is, could it turn and become a monster in their own relationship? I cede my time to you. I want to know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Okay. So, um, Marvin, I think you asked a very interesting question in part, which is uh, what, will, what will the kingdom of Saudi Arabia do in case of war with Iran? Um, all right, so I'll put on my Gulf hat. And I started being involved in the Gulf on July 27, 1990, when I arrived at the embassy in Riyadh, which was five days before Saddam marched on Kuwait, if you'll <laughs> recall. Uh, and I think that the answer would have been in the old days amongst Gulf hands that um, you know, that the, the Gulf states and especially the smaller states would quietly cheer, uh, you know, a confrontation with Iran, but perhaps not be out front. Mm -hmm. I think that has changed. I mean, I think that what you have seen for a variety of reasons, including to be candid, the decline of the Pax Americana in the Gulf, uh, and not just under this administration, um, that uh, the Gulf states are increasingly looking to provide their own security. And I think that's especially true for Saudi Arabia and for, um, for uh, the UAE. Very active uh, in Yemen militarily, very active in a wide variety of other um, areas quietly um, as well. I'd, I'd welcome Karen's thoughts on that. Um, just to touch on the question of the Sindhis and the Baluchis, um, uh, I don't have much to say on Sindhis. Uh, but I do think the question of uh, Baluchistan is very interesting. You have now a convergence of 
the question of Iran's relations with Pakistan. Uh, you know, they center obviously geographically on the province of uh, Baluchistan, on the uh, on both sides, um, and um, and you have CPEC uh, uh, running through Baluchistan. It seems to me that Baluchistan is an area that is going to be we're going to hear more about in the news, and there is going to be more. Uh, more developments coming out of Baluchistan and more outer power competition in Baluchistan. That's my sense. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think we're moving towards a more readiness for confrontation with Iran towards uh, from the the Gulf Arab states. I don't think we're there yet, and if it were not of their choosing, if the timing were not of their choosing, I think there would be more um, hesitance. I hope. One closing thought on the hypothetical with uh, an Iran conflict. I think for the Pakistani military, uh, that would actually be an, an opportunity um, to rediscover the kind of patronage that appears to be slipping out now with the United States, right? Sort of a similar dynamic to the post-1998, post-Cargill uh, relationship with the United States that gets transformed after the invasion of Afghanistan when Pakistan's military intelligence services become indispensable to sustain that project, right? I'm not saying in Iran, contingency would involve American logistics operating out of Balochistan or anything like that. But you have to think that you know, the, um, the Pakistani military and the ISI would, would, would find themselves becoming more of a useful partner for the United States. And that, in turn, might help Pakistan restore some of that uh, lost, uh, lost value. So again, it's a hypothetical. Uh, it really depends on the specifics, whether it's intentional or accidental, what the popular uh, pressures are on the military at the time. Uh, but that's one sort of dynamic that I think is probably worth thinking about. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, please uh, join me in thanking the panel for I think an excellent presentation. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usrp.org backslash podcast. Thank you for listening to this event.